All right, we come now this morning to the preaching of the Word of God. And if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew 14, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 14. And as we just sung to the Lord, one of the things that's supposed to be happening in the rhythms of the Christian life, when you come to church, it's supposed to be a feast in the house of Zion. And I hope you know that hundreds of times over by experience in your life. And I just want to say that I so want that for you this morning. I want you to feast in the house of Zion. I desire and we desire all across this room that we don't meet in vain. Who wants to come to church in vain? Who wants to meet in vain? We want to be encouraged with the things of Christ, with the things of the gospel. And every single week, this is why we ask, God come, God bear witness to your word. And so we're going to do that now. We're going to ask for the help of the Holy Spirit this morning to receive the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today in the name of of Jesus and Lord we say as your church that we love to gather in your name Lord we love it God we love to sing your praise God we don't know anything else in this world that prepares us for heaven for eternity with you like these moments gathered with your people giving you all the praise Lord but God we know that we Every week we enter back into our life, God, that you have placed us in, the circumstances, the family, the job, the neighborhood. And Lord, we ask for strength. Lord, we pray that you would send us back into our labor for you with fullness of joy, with real spiritual encouragement. Lord, we pray, God, that you would minister your word to us today, that you would show us Christ, that you would encourage our souls Every single one of us, Lord, and we ask this in the name of Jesus, Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right. We are about to unpack a story in the Gospel of Matthew this morning that's about bread, but it's not really about bread. This is the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and, and listen, it's so foundational to the ministry of Jesus that it's the only miracle besides the resurrection of Christ that's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The only one that shows up in all four besides the resurrection is this miracle that we're about to give attention to this morning. And so it's foundational because of what it illustrates about our Lord Jesus. And to understand this story, you need to know on the front end that the world that we live in is a world of types, shadows, and signs. In other words, when God made this world and everything in this world, he designed it in such a way to point beyond itself in millions of ways. Romans chapter 1 talks about this, that creation bears witness to its creator. And that happens in a bunch of different ways. But one of the ways that that happens is through food. And even food in its most basic form, bread, which was absolutely central to life in ancient culture. And there's something away, something about the way that God designed this world to point to these ultimate realities. In other words, creation is not ultimate. The creator is ultimate. And nothing in this world exists for itself. In fact, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16 tells us that Jesus, not only did he make everything, he made everything for him, for himself. And so creation bears witness to its maker. And that means that every time in your whole life that you have crunched a piece of bread between your teeth and swallowed and walked away from any dinner table that you've ever sat at in your whole life, God was preaching to you in that moment. 
Those were signs that were illustrating something of ultimate reality, something about Christ, your ultimate need, and what Jesus provides, the ultimate satisfaction. And in this passage, we're going to see not only do we need the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to see Jesus presented, revealed as the very bread of life. You ever thought about that phrase? What does that mean that Jesus is the bread of life, that he's the bread of all bread, that he brings eternal satisfaction to the human soul? Let's read our text this morning, beginning in Matthew chapter 14. Verse 13, this is the word of the Lord. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed the sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages to buy food for themselves. And Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. Now, our passage begins... In verse 13, where Jesus withdraws, the text says, to a desolate place. He was trying to get by himself to commune with his father. We see him do this several times in the Gospels. Now, interestingly, twice in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus withdraws right after something bad happens to his cousin, John. Back in Matthew chapter 4, Right after John was placed in prison, we read Matthew 4, 12, that Jesus withdraws to a desolate place. And here again in this passage, right after his cousin is martyred by wicked Herod, right after his head is cut off, our Lord withdraws to this desolate place. Now there's probably several things going on here, and I'll mention a few He's withdrawing, especially in that first instance, because it's not yet time for Jesus to be arrested. Or the phrase that the Gospel of John uses over and over again, his hour has not yet come. It's not yet time. It will be time, you know, when time comes for him to be arrested and turned over and crucified. But that time is not yet. And so he withdraws to a desolate place. I also think it's plausible to read here in the context, in the flow of Matthew 14, that part of what's going on is Jesus is grieving the death of his beloved cousin, John. He just got his head cut off. His his forerunner, the voice that cried out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. John ran his course, he finished his race, and the end of his life was... A bloody death. He suffered for faithfulness to Jesus Christ. And I think another thing going on here is our Savior is being reminded, you know, he knows what no one else knows. He knows that the whole progress of his life is progressing step by step, not to this, you know, enthronement moment where they're going to make him king in Israel. 
but to the bloody cross, the suffering of all sufferings where he drinks the cup of wrath from his father for his people. And I think he's being reminded of that as we as we work through these stages in the ministry of Jesus. And so what does he need to do? He needs strength. He needs to draw strength from the Lord his God. He needs comfort. And so he goes to the desolate place to be alone with God. Verse 13 tells us that this planned alone time was interrupted by these crowds as soon as his feet hit the shore. And so he takes a boat you know, he's ministering in Galilee. I'm going to go, you know, uh, retreat and, and, you know, a soul vacation, draw strength from my God. And as soon as he gets to the place where he's going to call on the name of the Lord by himself, boom, crowds all around him. And I just want to point this out. Jesus knows what it's like to be stretched thin. And I was even thinking about, you know, some of you young moms know what it's like to be stretched thin. You feel like you can't even, you know, go to the bathroom without a visitor, you know, knocking on the door or peeking their head in. And I just want you to know that Jesus knows what it's like to be stretched so thin that he can't even call out to God when he wants to call out to God. He knows that. Our Savior knows what that's like. As soon as his feet hit the beach, he gets this interruption and he tries to withdraw by boat and last week we we saw this phrase in the first verse of Matthew 14 the fame of Jesus he's so famous you know where, where he goes by boat they beat him there by foot all these crowds are just wanting to, uh, 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 to get in his presence to hear him teach they want to know more about Jesus Christ and in some ways, this becomes the apex, the climax of the public ministry of Jesus. You say, what do you mean? I mean this. This is probably the largest crowd that Jesus ever draws. In other words, if you're thinking, as that famous building, building and building and building, rising and rising, this is getting to the very climax before this, this stage shifts to Jerusalem. And the conflict intensifies even more in the final week of his life leading to crucifixion. The number that is mentioned in this text is 5,000, but Matthew tells us that's only the men. Just like you know, the census of Israel in the Old Testament were the numbers of men only. He says this was 5,000 besides women and children. And so these, this, this number could have... Uh, easily doubled, but even gone upwards of 20,000, 25,000 people that are gathered around the Lord Jesus Christ as soon as his feet touch the shore. And this was wise. You know, the crowds are not wrong. They're not wrong for following after. They were wise to pursue Christ. In other words, they, they had this desire to know more about Jesus, to hear his teaching. And this desire was strong. And in fact, in this passage, we learn that that desire was so strong to get into the presence of Jesus, to lay eyes on Jesus, they didn't even bring food with them. Like that desire to know more about Christ, it, it, it overrode the normal rhythms of their life, the normal stuff that you think about. I mean, think about it. You think about when you leave the house, you have your shoes on, your wallet in your pocket, your keys in this pocket, and something to eat for lunch, especially in this culture. No fast food, no McDonald's. And, and they're going after Christ with such you know, a, a strong desire to get in his presence that these things are set to the side. And I'll just say this, it is still wisdom to pursue Jesus like that. Not like, you know, I'm going to pursue knowing Jesus like a hobby. You know, I'm just checking out this Christianity thing of some say this, some say this. It is wisdom to pursue Jesus Christ with an intensity that overrides the normal rhythms of your life. That's wisdom. They weren't wrong for this. They were wise. And so we have this intrusion of this crowd. And you just think about, you know, the, the, even this scenario, it reminds us of how deep, different Jesus is 
from us. And so I want to note, you know, in verse 14, we have a reference to the compassion of Jesus Christ. And that's one of his glorious perfections, his compassion. And so think about this. He needs to be alone with his God. He wants to be alone with his God. He has planned to be alone with his God. And then the interruption comes. And how different is Jesus' response to interruption than what is our typical response to interruption? Or I'll ask you like this. You know, what is your first response when someone barges into your prayer closet? You know, is it the Chick-fil-A? How may I help you? It's, it's, it's my pleasure to do this thing that you're interrupting me about right now. Or do you find yourself frustrated? If you're really honest, do you find yourself frustrated? And look at what's on display in Jesus' life right now. At the very moments that we would expect that temptation or that sin to come out of him, you know, instead what we see come out of our Lord is perfection, moral perfection. And in this case, it's compassion. The compassion of Jesus Christ immediately shoves his plans to the side and begins to serve these needy crowds. The Greek word here for compassion is splagizoma. And that's just a long Greek word that ta- it, it literally refers to bowels of mercy. The imagery here is from the very depths are these affections or emotions of love and concern for the needy. This is our Lord. He is, he is a, a compassionate Savior. And, and it's not just like this, that he was interrupted and he tolerated it. Like he could have got angry and he tolerated it. You know, and he didn't get angry. It's more than that. It's, it, it's not just he didn't get angry, but in this moment, something from deep within our Savior was manifested to this crowd. He didn't just serve them in this outward way of I know what I'm supposed to do right now. He served them from the depths of his heart. He gave them not only you know, these, these outward duties, he gave them his heart in that moment. A heart of compassion, full of love, full of mercy. Now, this is one of the things that's, you know, uh, just all throughout this passage is what does this mean? I mean, yeah, we, we understand on the face of what it means, but what's the takeaway here? You know, Jesus feeds the hungry, Christians should be, feed the hungry. Is that the takeaway here? And this is why, you know, I started with this. This is a story about bread that's not really about bread. Say, what do you mean? Well, Mark's account of this miracle tells us the object of Jesus' compassion. And it's not Jesus looked out and saw a bunch of people that were so hungry and he had compassion on that. And I'm not saying that that wouldn't be true about Jesus. I think that is true about Jesus, that he cares about all suffering. But when the Bible actually explains the object of the compassion of the Savior, listen to how it said in Mark 6, 34. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. That's what stung his heart. That's what broke the heart of our Savior. That's what moved him to compassion. Now, you'll remember this just a few weeks ago. Ron reminded us that this shepherd language, that they were like sheep without a shepherd, that's Old Testament language for kings. Old Testament language for kings. In other words, Jesus is brokenhearted when he looks out over the multitudes and he knows that the people of Israel don't have a king. There is no David. There is no shepherd in Israel who's caring for the sheep. And it moves our Savior. His heart is broken about this. This is is about their lostness. Their needy condition of their soul. That's what's moving the heart of Jesus. And the good news for us is this is still who Jesus is today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if this is his response to the needy in this passage, this is his response today. His heart is filled with compassion for the needy. 
And one of the things you need to know, one of the truths about Jesus, if you are here today and you do not know Christ, it grieves him that you don't know your king. He sees all of it. He knows why you were made because he made you. He made you for himself. He sees all the brokenness in your life and it grieves him that you don't even know who your king is. You don't even know why you're alive. You don't even know who, who made you. It moves our Savior from deep within. And this is not an empty compassion. Sometimes, you know, uh, we feel compassion to remove something from somebody's life that we can't. We want to remove it. We want to take away that sickness, that suffering, but we can't do it. Jesus' compassion is different. There is nothing that moves him to compassion that he's not able to remedy. And we're about to see it in this story. The compassion of Jesus is, is about to be revealed. But I, I also want you to notice that it's contrasted here with the concern of the disciples. And they're the ones, you know, the, the whole day of ministry has happened the, the evening is drawing near, and the disciples are the one who, you know, tap Jesus on the shoulder and suggest now it's time to send them away to get something to eat. Now, I want to say this. Sometimes you'll hear this explained in such a way that Jesus is just filled with concern and love, and the disciples just don't care about these people. They're cold. They're callous. And I don't think that's the case in this passage. I think there's something different being contrasted here. I think the disciples are demonstrating what you could call natural, pragmatic concerns. In other words, that's a natural concern. We've been here all day, thousands of people here, nobody's eaten. You know, maybe it's time to send them away to go get something to eat. And maybe that happened a bunch of times in the ministry of Jesus. They would minister all day, break for the night, you know, back the next day, back at it again. I don't think they're wrong for this. They're just not concerned about the same things that Jesus is concerned about. And so I think the contrast here is between two different types of concern. One is the pragmatic, natural concerns of the disciples. And the other is the divine compassion that is pulsing through the heart of Jesus Christ. Both are concerned with needs, but only one is concerned with ultimate needs. And so this is the contrast. One says, send them away to go get bread. And our Savior says, no, sit them down. And he's about to spread this banquet in the middle of the desert. Just think about the imagery there. The miracle that Jesus is about to perform here is a public proclamation of his identity. And that's what we started with. This is a sign. It's a miraculous sign. That means it points to something beyond itself. Do you know that all the miracles of Jesus are like this? In other words, why are the miracles of Jesus healing the blind, healing the lame, healing the deaf, driving out demons? Why is it not lightning bolts coming from the sky, levitating in the middle of the air, in other words, those would be supernatural too, but the, the miracles of Jesus are signs. They point us to ultimate realities, and this is no different. This is about to be a proclamation of the identity of Jesus. Who is he? And this is where it's helpful to remember the context in Matthew's gospel, and actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this miracle immediately follows an account about a wicked king named Herod, the man who killed John the Baptist. And so we have this contrast between the fake king in Israel, the one who serves himself and not the people. Herod would have been one of those leaders and rulers that was condemned by the Old Testament prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel as worthless shepherds who feed themselves. They don't feed the sheep. They feed themselves. They don't care about the people. They only care about themselves. That's Herod. And so we have this contrast in Matthew 14. While Herod is enjoying his wicked feast, 
luxurious feast and chopping off the heads of God's prophets, the true king of Israel is spreading a table in the wilderness, laying down his life and feeding the people. You saw Jesus. He shelved his plans. This is the selfless savior. He, he, his whole life is oriented towards saving his people from their sins. And so this miracle reveals Jesus as the true shepherd of Israel. And we're going to talk about that more. But this is direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Listen to Ezekiel 34. And God says this. He says, Ezekiel 34, I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. And so there's coming a day in Israel where there's no, you know, everybody before him has failed. And God says, you know what? I'm going to fix this myself. I myself will shepherd the sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He will feed them. That was what was needed all along is somebody to step forward and feed the people of God. And this is Jesus being revealed as the shepherd of Israel. The New Testament tells us that Jesus fulfills this shepherd imagery. The New Testament calls Jesus in John 10 the good shepherd. The good shepherd. 1 Peter 5 calls him the chief shepherd. The shepherd above all shepherds. And then Hebrews 13 calls him the great shepherd of the sheep. Finally, one has appeared who will lay down his life for the people of God. Who will feed them and not feed himself. Now, as this miracle unfolds, there are these two themes that are running through and entwining with each other. Or I could say it like this. Is this parable about Jesus? I mean, is this miracle about Jesus or is this miracle about us? And the answer is both. It's mainly about Jesus. The major theme in this, this sign, this miracle, is the revelation of the identity of Christ. It's about Christology. Who is Jesus? The most important question that you, have, that you ever have to answer in your life is who do you say that Jesus is? That's in the, on the front burner. But at the same time, there's this minor theme emerging in this passage about the agency of the apostles. Jesus weaves them into this story in such a way to teach them an intentional lesson about laboring in the kingdom, about serving our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the passage is about both. And we see this weave together in this miracle. Jesus could have done this a lot of different ways, but the way Jesus does this miracle is he uses the 12 as his agents to distribute the bread. And that's super simple. I just want it to, 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 to land on us. He could have done it in a lot of different ways. But the way that Jesus did it was to multiply the bread, put it in the hands of the 12, and then the 12 deliver it to the multitudes. And we see this theme emerging in verse 16 when Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. Now I want you to imagine being in that moment. And you're like, uh-oh, you know, like, Caught me flat-footed right there because I know a lot of things about myself. And one of the things I know right now, Lord Jesus, is I don't have anything in the tank that could begin to approach this need that you just called me to meet when you said, you give them something to eat. And yet this is what Jesus does, and he does it intentionally. Unless we think that, you know, this is the only time. That Jesus would ever call his disciples to this impossible task. Think about this. This is all over the word of God. That the people of God are called to do things that we cannot do in our own strength. Quick survey. The book of Deuteronomy gives us this commandment. Circumcise your heart. You can't do it. 
You don't have anything in the tank to accomplish that commandment. Or what about this one? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. Make yourself full of the influence of the third person of the Trinity. And again, you're like, man, how in the, I mean, how in the world? These commandments are not like tie your shoe. You understand? They're impossible in the natural realm. They're impossible with our own resources. In Acts 26, Jesus sends the Apostle Paul to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God. I mean, imagine that. Your job is to turn people from the power of Satan to the power of God. Jesus, can I get five practical steps of how do I do that? That's the wrong pivot. The right pivot is you can't do that. Or maybe the most famous of these commandments is at the end of this gospel, Jesus says to his church, to this group of fishermen, go disciple the nations. The whole world, make them Christians. You're like, whoa. You know, if I was ever insufficient for any task, this is the task that we are insufficient for. And Jesus is intentionally bringing this tension to the surface. He calls them to do something that cannot be done in their own strength. And the very first pivot of their soul is in verse 17. They know it. They begin to do, you could call this a, a supply inventory, like a manager of a business. He's, he's thinking, okay, what do we got you know, in the account? What do we got in storage? They supply all of their inventory and what is brought forward? Five loaves and two fish. That's all that's in the tank. John's gospel tells us that that five loaves and two fish actually come from a small boy, a young boy, which at least tells us that there are more than 5,000 grown men in this gathering. There's women and children. And so we have this contribution of this little boy's sack lunch that his mama packed him, crackers and sardines, five loaves, two fish, and up to 20,000 people in front of them. Supply, demand. Okay, now I'm not, you know, super, you know, uh, astute on economics, but you get it, right? Supply, demand. They don't match each other. There's no way to even knock a dent in this problem. And I want you to think about what Jesus could have done. In verse 18... Jesus looks at these tiny resources and he says, bring them to me. Now, he could have said, that'll never work. Throw that in the trash. We're going to do this another way. I mean, just think about that the whole way through. This could have happened in lots of other ways that do not involve, you know, human mediation, no agency. You know, this could have happened, you know, like, like Exodus 16. You know, uh, raining down manna from heaven. It could have been like that. Where all of a sudden they're like, man, I'm hungry. Look, oh, right there on the ground. You know, man, that was awesome. They, they, the five loaves and two fish could have been set to the side and nothing ever done with them. But Jesus says, bring them to me. Bring that little supply to me. He actually intends... To use these tiny resources to feed the multitudes. And there's a lesson here for the disciples in the way that Jesus is doing this miracle. And then again in verse 19, what do we see? The disciples are the ones running back and forth, back and forth between Savior and hungry crowd. Savior and hungry crowd. And again, it could have happened differently. Could have had a truckload of bread. Back up, back up, back up, back up. Boom. Dump it out. Everybody in a free-for-all. 20,000 people. Huge pile of bread. Done. No mediators needed. Why did it happen like this? We'll come back to that. The king of Israel in this story spread a feast in 
the wilderness. Our text tells us, try to imagine it. He held that little supply in his hand and he prayed. He blessed the Lord for that provision. And then he broke it, the bread, and he gave it to the disciples. And he did it again. And he did it again. And the bread just kept multiplying in Jesus' hands again and again and again. Until verse 20 says, all were satisfied. He did not stop until everybody was full. Everybody ate to the full. And don't you just know this? I mean, the text doesn't say it, but don't you just know that that was good bread? It was good. It was sat, it's not you know, some nasty, you know, dried up cracker. This was the bread that was multiplied in the hands of Jesus. And it satisfied them. They walked away not like, yeah, had a little bit, could have ate a little bit more. They walked away satisfied. Jesus provided for the multitudes. And listen in verse 21. And those who ate were 5,000 men besides women and children. And so I want us to learn something about Jesus in this miracle is he is the king who satisfies. Do you know that about your Lord? He, he's, it's not just that it's true that he's king and that you would be wise to come to him. It'll be the best thing that ever happens to you. Do you understand that? He's the king that satisfies. He doesn't just rule in such a way. That you better serve him because it's right, but you're going to be miserable the whole time. It's good to serve this king. He satisfies the soul. John's gospel tells us, this is how we know this is about more than bread. John 6, John's gospel tells us that immediately after this miracle, the crowd interpreted this whole thing as a sign that was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And John 6 tells us that immediately and forcibly and publicly they attempt to make Jesus king. In other words, whatever went down in this multiplying of bread, the way that it was understood by everybody there was that's the king of Israel. He's finally here. Enthrone that man. That is God's king. That is God's Messiah and the basic outline, you know, the basic point of that sign, they got that right. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. I am the king. I give bread. I feed the people of God. But as the gospel continues, we learn that these crowds, they didn't fully understand. You know, the same ones that want to make him king. You know, just wait just a few days later, maybe a few weeks later, and they don't want him to be king anymore. And so it's kind of like they understand, but not really understand. That basic, you know, impulse is right, Jesus is king, but they don't understand what kind of king he is. The crowds thought that this messianic banquet that just happened in, in the wilderness was a prelude to political power. And deliverance from Rome. In other words, the celebration goes something like this. Finally, God's king is here. We're about to off the Romans. And finally, we're about to be free. We're going to be delivered from our enemies. That's what they thought. That's what kind of king they thought that Jesus was. That's what they understood this this banquet to, to foreshadow. When in fact... This messianic banquet in the wilderness, it's not a prelude to political power. The Gospels, all four of them tell us it's a prelude to a bloody cross, to a laying down of this king's life for his people. In other words, Jesus was about to accomplish an exodus far deeper And and longer lasting than deliverance from the Romans. He is the new Moses. Moses fed in the wilderness. But his bread didn't last forever. And they got hungry again. Jesus is this new Moses who is about to bring this new exodus. And he satisfies 
the souls uh, uh, of every human being, but he's not the, the kind of king that they were expecting. This exodus is going to be an exodus of sin. And this deliverance that he's going to provide is going to be a deliverance from sin. The guilt of sin. The shame of sin. The penalty of sin. He's going to be the long-awaited Savior. And so understand, what's the, what is this about? The multiplication of the bread in the hands of Jesus to the thousands is a prelude to the gospel this is a miracle about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the parallels of the verbs in this passage. What did he do? He took bread, number one. He blessed bread, gave thanks, number two. He broke it, number three. And he gave it to his disciples, number four. Where else in, in the gospels do we see an exact parallel to those verbs? And the answer would be the night before his crucifixion. And we celebrate this every week at this church in this, in this holy moment where Jesus gives this gift to his church. And what does he do? He takes bread. He gives thanks. He breaks bread. He distributes it to his disciples. And his commandment is to eat and drink and remember him. This is a sign of the new covenant. In other words, this is not about full bellies. This is something pointing forward that Jesus is the bread. It's not just that he gives it. He is that bread. He didn't merely come to give bread. He came to be bread. By dying in our place and offering us his life. You know, in, in, in this story, Jesus is the host of the banquet. But the reality that this story points to, Jesus is the banquet. Do you understand the difference? He does give bread, but he also is bread. This is why in John 6, Jesus says these famous words, I am the bread of life. This means that he is the only one that can give you life. There is no other in all the world, in all the history of the world. No one can make your dead soul live but Jesus. He's the only one. He's the resurrection and the life. He is the bread of life. Jesus is the only one that can satisfy your soul. I want you to think about that bread imagery. That's what it means. What do you do? You eat bread and it sustains you, it nourishes you, and it satisfies you. And you need to understand this about the Christian gospel. It's good news of great joy for all people. Jesus satisfies us. He fills up our longing soul. In other words, every other meal, every other bread you ever eat in your whole life, you get hungry again. Not so with Jesus. He so satisfies our souls that when we have Christ, we will never lack. Our souls will never lack ever again. He's the bread of life. To know Jesus is to be, in, is to be nourished throughout all eternity. To be satisfied. And man, there's something so constant about Christian testimony. That, you know, I was awakened to my true state as a sinner and I heard the gospel of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that he offers me free pardon and his own righteousness given to me as a righteous garment. And then I repented and I believed on this Savior. And whoever says this, and my life has, has been awful ever since. I've never been as unhappy as I have since I've come to know Jesus. Who says that? Who says that? No, we're the ones who our whole life were searching for pearls, and then all of a sudden we find one, and everything else is lost because I got the, the pearl, the, 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 the treasure of, of heaven. He satisfies my soul. He's good. Knowing Christ is to be satisfied in Christ. And the good news for us today is that Jesus did die and rise. 
He did do that. And he is still inviting sinners to come to him. Just like in this story, he invites them to come to sit and to eat bread and be satisfied. That's good news. That the one that you sinned against, he could hold all your sins over your head and judge you justly, righteously. But the invitation of, of grace from this king of grace is to come and be satisfied. You know, before you become a Christian, you don't even know why you're alive. That's how Christ-centered the whole universe is. You don't even know why you breathe air until you see Christ. And then all of a sudden, it's clear. He is the reason for my whole existence. He's your bread. You were so made for Jesus. You were so made to be satisfied in Jesus that he can be described as your bread. He nourishes you in every way. He satisfies you in every way. And I want to call you today to come to him. To be satisfied in Jesus Christ. And I do want to say this. To, to come to saving faith in Christ is to, be, is to be more satisfied than you can possibly imagine. There was a verse somebody sent me this morning. It talks about the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. That he satisfies your soul and it's like, oh yeah, you know, like uh, I, I had this trinket one time and it satisfied me for a little while. And then, the, and then you know, the, the value of it wore off and it didn't satisfy me anymore. Jesus is not like that. It never gets old. There's unsearchable riches in our Savior for all eternity. And you should receive him. You should come to him. It's wise to come to him. You should receive him as your bread. You should come to him as the only one who can satisfy your soul. You know, sometimes we encourage those in our midst who are visiting the church to allow the bread and the cup to pass you by. And that's right. But you shouldn't allow this bread to pass you by. The bread and the cup point to Jesus, the bread of life. You shouldn't allow the bread of life to pass you by. You should eat it. You should come to him. You should be satisfied. John 6 says it this way. 635, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. That's the promise of our Lord. No one's going to come to Christ with real faith and feel like you got ripped off. Nobody. You'll never hunger. And you know, the fact that everybody in this story walks away with a, with a belly full of bread is a testimony to Jesus' desire to satisfy all who come to him. In other words, everyone that comes, nobody is cast out. This is the grace of Christ. The king that satisfies our soul. Now, what about the apostles in this story? Verse 20 tells us at the very end of this passage. That after this miracle is over, after everybody eats to the full. Five loaves and two fish and then they pick up 12 baskets full of leftovers, full of crumbs. What is the significance of that number? I want you to think about that. Now, some find the significance in pointing backwards to the 12 tribes of Israel. And, and this way of thinking, you know, sounds something like this. That, that you know, that, that is a testimony that Jesus is more than able to satisfy the whole nation of Israel. All 12 tribes plus leftovers. That's how able he is to bless his people. And I think that's true. I do think that's true about Jesus. He's able to do that. But I think the context here leads us in a different direction. That the significance of that number 12 is focused in on these 12 men that just served as agents in distributing that bread. In other words, I submit to you that there's something about those 12 baskets that every apostle is holding that is meant to be an object lesson from our Lord to these men. 
And I think they would have remembered it for the rest of their life. Think about their role in this miracle. They had the privilege of serving as waiters in this messianic banquet. When the table was spread in the wilderness, they were the waiters. Jesus was the chef. They were the waiters. And I want, to try, I want you to try to picture their role on that day. And some of this is speculative. This is, you know, this is just us trying to imagine how much this would have marked these men. They were, they were the ones who suggested to Jesus. You know, maybe they tapped him on the shoulder and they say, you know what, we've been at, been at this all day. It's time to send them away and, and where they can go get some bread. Then they're the ones that Jesus turns and says, you give them something to eat. They bore the weight of that commandment. They were confronted by that order from their master. And then, you know, they would have been the ones who saw, you know, closer than anybody else in this 20,000 upwards group, they would have saw how small the resources were. Like they would have been an eye shot distance, five loaves, two fish, we got no chance here. They would have saw that. They would have been the ones walking through the crowds, you know, delivering the order of Jesus. Uh, excuse me, you know, could y'all sit down? Why do you want us to sit down, Peter? I don't know. Boss says sit down. And, and, and I really wish I could tell you why. Uh, and by the way, could you also do it in groups of 50 and 100? You know, boss says 50 and 100. I'm just delivering the mail here. They're the ones in this story. And then, most of all, they're the ones that as that bread began to multiply in the hands of Jesus, they're the ones delivering the supply to the masses. Do you think they would ever forgot that? In other words, there were other miracles where they're way more passive. You know, when Jesus speaks to Lazarus and says, Lazarus, come forward. They're standing off to the side. They're not helping. They're doing nothing in that story other than watching. This one, they're all in it. They're in it. This is speculative math, but if each basket would have held around 50, you know, enough uh, bread for, to feed 50 people, then maybe each of the 12 would have made about 25 rounds back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Fill them up again, fill them up again, fill them up again. And how many ever trips that was, every time the bread kept multiplying in the hands of Jesus. Imagine the effect this would have had on them. You know, maybe during one of those trips, you could imagine one shouting to the other. Maybe it's Peter, and he says, man, he just filled my basket, slam full with from five loaves and two fish, and poof, whole thing's full right here. I'm about to go pass it out. And then his brother Andrew says, me too, bro, me too. He did it to me too. There was nothing, and then the whole thing was full. And then maybe somebody, maybe John, you know, maybe the, the 10 trip, you know, back and forth, he says, you know, something like, he's about to do it. He, I know he's about to, he's about to feed them all. He's about to feed every single one of them. And maybe that multiplying, you know, happened for up to an hour in the hands of Christ to distribute that bread to be distributed to thousands of people. They were, they were all, the, all involved in this story. And then think of how it ended. Everything's done. Crowd is dismissed. And the Savior is standing. Twelve men around him. And every one of them are holding a basket. What does Jesus intend to teach these men? It is intentional. Mark 8 verse 19. Jesus calls them back to this lesson. He says, when I broke the five loaves. For the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. In other words, he didn't want them to forget it. And even in his own ministry, he's calling them back to remember this lesson. This was no accident. Jesus was satisfying the multitudes, but he was also instructing his disciples. And he willed. To satisfy the masses through his servants. Each holding a basket of leftovers. And the point is simple. And this is encouraging for us today if we can wrap our minds around it. The point is simple. These men were getting their PhDs in the mathematics 
of the kingdom of God. And you could summarize this lesson with this simple phrase, a little becomes a lot in the hands of Jesus Christ. In other words, think about that. For the rest of their life, the men that were destined to take the gospel to the nations could remember this moment where they brought nothing to the table, where thousands were fed, and they had leftovers, you know, at the end of the day. Need completely met, the supply of Christ totally undiminished, and they did nothing, you know, of themselves to bring anything to the table. They're just agents. They're just his servants. These men were the same ones. The ones that distributed bread were the same ones to distribute, that, that Jesus chose to distribute the gospel to the whole world. His apostles. His twelve. And so this is the story about bread that's not really about bread. He's teaching them about ministry. He's teaching them about laboring for the kingdom of heaven. A little becomes a lot in the hands of Jesus Christ. And that's a glorious lesson. That's a glorious encouragement for us. If we can learn to think about that rightly. That means we're all candidates to be used by Christ. I hope you're encouraged by that. I want to mention three points of application that we can draw from these 12 baskets of leftovers. Number one, this, call, this principle calls us to faith. In other words, the story reminds us that Jesus really does call us to do things that we cannot do. He really does. In other words, you could say it like this. The Christian life is so impossible in human strength that the only remedy is the indwelling Holy Spirit. And if that doesn't happen, we got no chance. None. This is a call to faith. The twelve were called to do more than they could do, and yet they did it because the sufficiency of Jesus covered their insufficiency. And that's really good news for us. It's really good news for us. We have to learn this pivot in our souls. we got to think rightly about ourselves. We bring nothing to the table. We don't have anything in the tank to meet people's spiritual needs. But you can't stay there. There has to be this pivot of soul. You know, of I'm insufficient, but Jesus Christ is my sufficiency. They were learning this. I bring nothing to the table, but thousands get fed when Jesus covers my insufficiency. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says it this way. Verse 5, not that we are sufficient in ourselves as claiming anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. That's what it means to be a Christian. You, you don't have any sufficiency in and of yourselves. Your sufficiency comes from Christ. Don't ever forget it. And trust him for it. Trust the Lord Jesus to be your sufficiency, to labor in his name, to meet the spiritual needs of all who are around you, to labor for the kingdom of God. He is our sufficiency. And this is, it should call us to faith, to trust our God. He is our help. Our help comes from the Lord, the one who made heaven and earth. Number two, it calls us to humility. You know, I love to think about, you know, uh, these categories that the most gifted Christian among us, or you could even say even in church history, is like... You know, somebody who brings five loaves and two fish to feed 20,000 people. In other words, that the most gifted among us and ever in the history of the church, even they have a supply that's far you know, inferior to the demands that are all around us. And it calls us to humility. We need to think rightly about ourselves. In other words, if people are helped by your ministry, it's not because of you. And this is the way the kingdom of God operates. This is those kingdom you know, uh, mathematics. This is the way it works. When people are helped by you, they're not really being helped by you. <laughs> You're the vessel. The Lord Jesus is just using you 
weakness, insufficiency, and all. And he's actually working through his people to meet those needs. This applies even today. For example, if you are helped by this sermon today, it's because you heard a better sermon than the sermon that I preached. I mean, that's just how it works. That's how it always works. In other words, when someone receives spiritual encouragement, there is no room in the kingdom of God for boasting in ourselves. Our sufficiency is from him. We don't, we, we, we don't get to share his glory at all. It's like, you know, somebody boasting, you know, at the end of that feast, you know, 12 baskets full. And somebody's thinking, I put five loaves and two fish, you know, in this thing. You know, I got something, I got something, you know, uh, I got a stake in this. I got a piece of the glory here. That's ridiculous. You brought nothing. In your ministry... If anyone is helped by your labor of love, by your words of encouragement, by your Christ-like example, any good that you do to any soul in all the world your whole life is because your small supply was being multiplied in the hands of Jesus. You see how humbling that is? That there's nothing to boast about. There's nothing to brag about he gets glory and he shares it with none and then finally this is a call to contentment and I'll just mention this quickly you know that day when Jesus fed the multitudes there was one host and a bunch of servants there was one master that called everybody to sit down and there was a bunch of waiters One chef, a bunch of waiters. One host, a bunch of servants. And listen, and listen well. This is the highest status that you will ever attain in the kingdom of God. In other words, this is not like the world. I've been working for this company for 45 years. I started, you know, in this grunt, you know, task. And then I graduated to, you know, this foreman job. And then I was the manager of this division. And now, you know, I'm the CEO of this company that I've worked for for 40, you know, five years. Learn this well. You never, ever graduate past this title in the kingdom of God. We are servants. We're servants. And we're happy servants. In other words, there's never a time where we get past this role of waiters in the banquet. This is our role for our whole lives. It's to introduce people to the Lord Jesus Christ and and to have him work through us for his glory and not our own. We are servants in his house. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 5 says, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. Now, that's in, this is encouraging stuff. It sets us free from, you know, promote, from trying to seek greatness for ourselves. It sets us free from trying to be like someone else. And, and it, it encourages us to just whatever that is, your five loaves and two fish, whatever that is, weakness insufficiencies and everything bring it to Jesus put it in his hands or in the language of Romans 12 lay down your life every single one of us as a living sacrifice to the Lord our God put it in his hands and trust him to multiply if you get a hold of this principle You will be an extremely fruitful Christian your whole life. If you learn it now, if you learn it early, put it in his hands, trust him to multiply it, and when he does, bless his holy name. The Lord calls us to bring what we have, weakness and all, and place it at the feet of Jesus Christ. What a great encouragement this is. For us who desire to labor for our Lord. We want our life to count. We don't want to waste it. And we don't have to. We have a willing Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we call 
on your name today. And we ask, God, that you would strengthen us and that you would do it through your word, God. Lord, we pray that you would give us a glimpse of the glory, the willingness of our Lord Jesus. We pray that you would remind us today of the gospel, the finished work of our Savior. And we pray that you would help us to leave this place today with so much encouragement of your willingness to use weak men and women to satisfy thousands. Lord, praise your name. God, do it over and over and over again for your own glory in this local church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord.